remembering, knowing. Whispering I am in a quiet place. The revelation of presence. A name of power. Choosing, calling, commanding. Strengthening of the lowly. Inclusion of sinful man. A relational power. Demanding, warning, threatening. Requiring obedience and sacrifice. The punishment for rebellion. A spectacle of power. Saving, delivering, redeeming. Reclaiming what had been lost. The fulfillment of promise. A miraculous power. Listening, judging, forgiving. Relenting of deserved wrath. The provision for the broken. A law of power. A name. A relationship. A spectacle. A miracle. A law. The story of power. Well, good morning, Genesis. Good morning. Uh, my name is Kyle. I serve as one of the pastors here, and sincerely welcome. If you are new or newer, uh, we are glad you are here. Hopefully, in the few moments you've been here, you've been able to be encouraged through conversation and through song. But as we continue this morning, if, if you want to get more information about what Genesis is about, uh, check out the living room at some point. It's where our leaders are at, and they'd love to talk with you, connect with you of what's going on, not only on Sundays, but what happens throughout the week here at Genesis. Uh, let me ask you a question, though. How many of us have a story from our past uh, that we tell and someone else tells it completely differently? So probably like you and your spouse or you and a friend, you and a family member, you're telling the same story, but the events that happen in the story couldn't be further, from, couldn't be further apart. And probably the difference is who looks like a bigger idiot, right? So my lovely, beautiful, misremembering wife loves to tell this story that I always have to correct her on. This is back when we were dating. And it was in the fall, and so I took her to a Halloween-themed amusement park. And so it was cool. Like, they transformed the amusement park into, like, cobwebs and fog machines, and it was scary and creepy, and all the workers were dressed up as goblins and zombies and killer clowns. It was, it was everything Halloween amusement park should be. And so we're there, we're getting freaked out, we're having a great time. And part of this amusement park is they had, I want to say like eight or nine haunted houses that you could walk through, and they're all different themed. And so we start going through these haunted houses. And eventually we make it to a haunted ghost pirate ship. This is where the stories diverge completely. As I remember it, we walk into this ghost ship. And Lindsay's terrified. She's nervous, she's shaking, she's anxious. And so I did what any good boyfriend would do. I stepped in front of her, I grabbed her by the hand, I looked at her in the eye and I said, babe, it's gonna be okay. And then a ghost pirate came up to us. I thanked him for his enthusiasm. I said, where's the nearest accent? And politely and calmly, we walked out, found a funnel cake, end of the story. 
Lindsay tells it this way. We walk into a ghost ship. I'm terrified. Ghost comes out from around the corner. And then, I don't know why, she remembers me taking her, pushing her towards the ghost, <laughs> screaming, take the girl and leave me alone. Unrelated note, I cannot get Lindsay to go to a haunted house with me anymore, and I don't know why. The point is how you remember past events determines future actions. If you remember wrongly, everything you do moving forward is going to be off track, you're going to be off course. Because the decisions you make, they're not grounded in the truth, they're not grounded in fact. It's misconceptions that get you off course. But if you remember rightly, well then it becomes like this launching pad that keeps you grounded in truth but propels you forward where you need to go because you're acting in light of truth. You're acting in light of what's already happened. And see, Exodus 13 is all about remembering rightly. It's remembering rightly to ensure that the Israelites will proceed rightly. And so if you're new, if you've been coming for a few weeks, I need to get us all up to speed. For the last uh, six months now, we've been studying Israel's history up until this point. And for the last six months, Israel has been through an unbelievable amount of pain and suffering. They have spent over 400 years enslaved in Egypt. And this whole history, God wants them to remember rightly. He wants them to remember what it was like when they were hunted down and beaten and murdered by the Egyptians. He wants them to remember what it was like to feel that oppressive hand of Pharaoh. He wants them to remember when they cried out for God to show up and how they waited and waited century after century. And he wants them to remember what happened when God finally did show up, when God worked through Moses, when God sent these plagues to devastate the Egyptians. And then last week, when the Exodus finally came and God delivered the Israelites from Egypt. In short, for the past 12 chapters of Exodus, we've seen God's godness on full display. And it's actually what the author intended. Moses, who wrote the book of Exodus, he intended the first third of the book would be all about who God is, what God's like, what his character's like, why he is the true God over all other gods. And so today we come to Exodus 13 and the book's going to change a little bit. Now it's not only about who God is, it's also about how do God's people live in light of who God is. So they just come from Egypt, it's just the Exodus, and the first thing that God's going to tell them is going to give them instruction. And what he's going to say, as simply as I can say it, is never forget. Never forget your story, Israel. Don't forget, because if you remember wrongly, everything you do from this point forward is going to be off course. So if you have your Bible, open up to Exodus 13. If you're on your phone, click on the ESV translation, that way we can uh, study the same text together. And just as you follow along, I'm going to read verse 1 and 2 and then jump down to verse 11. So Exodus 13 Verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. Verse 11, 
When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and to your fathers, and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are male shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. Or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time to come your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes. For by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt. As soon as they get out, he says, never forget. He first says, never forget whose you are. Right? Verse 2, consecrate to me all the firstborn. Now, consecrate, it's this big church word, kind of intimidating. It doesn't have to be. All it means is to set apart or to dedicate. So God says, as soon as you get out, the firstborn, dedicate them to me, set them apart to me. They're going to belong to me now. And he says about the firstborn, because the firstborn represented the entire family. So what God's really saying is, as soon as you come out and the firstborn is consecrated to me, now your whole family belongs to me. This is God claiming Israel for himself. And so this whole process of consecration, it becomes common practice throughout Israel's history. Always reminding the people whose they are, who it is they belong to. So there's a story of one of God's most prominent prophets. His name's Samuel. And Samuel is born to the woman Hannah. Now if you remember Hannah, she desperately wanted to conceive. She really wanted a son, but she was barren. And so just like the Israelites almost, she cried out to God. She cried out to God, will you give me the son that I so desperately want? And through divine intervention, Hannah finally does conceive. And she gives birth to Samuel, her son. She finally has him. She finally has what she's been longing for for so long. And do you remember what the first thing Hannah does with Samuel? She brings him to the temple and dedicates him to the Lord. It, she consecrates her son to God's service, reminding Samuel the rest of his life whose you belong to. Or you go forward about 1,800 years. Luke chapter 2. Mary and Joseph have Jesus Christ, right? It's the Christmas story. And as soon as they get done singing away in the manger, what do Mary and Joseph do? They bring Jesus to the temple according to the law of Moses. They're dedicating Christ. They're, setting him, they're consecrating him according to the law, all because of Exodus 13. When God said, do not forget whose you are. If I could, um, I'm sorry, let me excuse you. Never forget whose you are. The question I have is this. Do we really belong, or do we really feel like we actually belong to someone? Like, do you actually feel like you are belonging to someone else? Because even here on face value, this whole paradigm, it seems questionable. Because weren't the Israelites just 
liberated for freedom? Wasn't the whole point of God delivering them from Pharaoh so that they could be a free people in the wilderness? I thought the whole point of Exodus was God giving freedom to the Israelites. And so when you read this, at best it feels like a lateral move. Like, Pharaoh ruled them, and now God rules them. And certainly God's more benevolent, but is it freedom? Let me ask you, and you can be honest this morning, do you actually feel like you belong to anyone? Like at the end of the day, don't you feel pretty much autonomous? Don't you basically feel like you do what you want to do, that you're an independent person? And sure, you might be coming to church and engaging in spiritual things, but you're here voluntary, right? Like at the end of the day, don't you feel like you're your own person? And see, this is why it's so important to remember rightly. Because if you remember wrongly, incorrectly, everything you do moving forward is going to be thrown off. And God knows that we have this propensity to feel like we're free. He knows we're always fighting for self-determining independence. We always have this pull towards autonomy. That's Genesis 3. And so God has to remind them as soon as they move from Pharaoh, no, you belong to me. He's reminding them, never forget whose you are. But because God knows we so quickly forget, he's going to give it context. And the next thing he says is never forget what God's done. Read with me again, starting in verse 13. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time to come your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. See, the reason God can claim ownership over Israel is one word, redemption. He says, never forget what I've done. Never forget that I'm the one who redeemed you. I'm the one who worked on your behalf. When you belong to Pharaoh, I'm the one who intervened. Don't forget who you are because don't forget what I've done. He redeemed us. And so he sets up this whole process of consecration because in this process, right, the firstborn animals you sacrifice to the Lord, but the firstborn sons, again, look with me in the text, verse 13, you shall redeem. In redemption, now it happens through sacrificial payment. Specifically, slaughter a lamb and redeem the son. And now you can be thinking to yourself, what's lamb and son, like how does this connect? Why is a lamb going in place of a son? Because God is always hearkening back to what he's already done. Exodus 12, we studied the Passover. In the Passover, God told the Israelites, put the blood of a lamb on the doorpost, and that way, when I come to kill all the firstborns, I'm going to know who's mine. I'm going to know who my children are. And so when he sets us up, he's always going back to what I've already done. Sacrifice the lamb so that I know that you're mine. The sacrifice buys the redemption. 
never forget what God's done, and then you'll never forget whose you are. If there's one thing I've been wrestling with since maybe day two of being a Christian, it's forgetting what God's done in my life. Even now, I have to think to myself, how much do I actually just sit and savor the gospel? Do I marinate in my redemption? How much am I remembering what God's done in my life? Am I remembering rightly? Because if I'm remembering incorrectly, it's going to throw off what I do now. It's going to throw off what I do in the future. Have I forgotten what God's done? You look at the gospel enough, and all of a sudden the glimmer starts to wear off a little bit. Let me just ask you the same question. How often do you just sit with the gospel? How much are you meditating what God's done for you? When you wake up in the morning, is the first thought before your feet are on the ground, God, thank you for the gospel? Or is it right to the emails and the texts and everything else that you missed? See, because what I love about Exodus 13, it's one of these texts, it's pointing both backwards and it's pointing forwards. Because Exodus 13, it's this little flicker of what redemption is among the Israelites. But this flicker will become a floodlight in the New Testament when we get the most full picture of what ultimate redemption is. Because Exodus 13, God says, you were never free. That freedom, that was an illusion. You were under the hand of Pharaoh, and then I'm the one who redeemed you. By the blood of the lamb, now I'm going to redeem your firstborn son. And God gives us more color in the New Testament, but he'll say the same thing. You were never free. That illusion of freedom, it, it was a facade. Right? Because you're, you're enslaved to sin. You have these shackles, you have these chains around you. And I'm going to redeem you as well. And how will God redeem the New Testament? The blood of a lamb. Right? Exodus 13, it says, look back. But for us, no, look forward. Your redemption comes to the... What's the first thing John the Baptist said when he saw Jesus walking? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Right? Jesus Christ, that is the Lamb that they're talking about in Exodus 13. We just get a bigger picture in the New Testament. And it's the spilled blood of Christ. It's that lamb's blood that's going to redeem us now. Ephesians 1. In him, we have redemption. The forgiveness of sins. Through his blood, according to the riches of his grace. Colossians 1. You've been delivered from the domain of darkness. You've been transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. How? Because in him you have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Paul's writing to a young pastor named Titus. He says, in Christ, he gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Redemption, that is the gospel, that is everything. That is, that is what God says, don't forget. 
Don't forget whose you are because don't forget what I've done when I redeemed you with the blood of Christ. And so let me ask you again. Have you forgotten what Christ has done? Are you remembering rightly your redemption? That's kind of a 30,000 foot question. Let me, let me ask it differently. If when you look at your life, you struggle to find regular rhythm in God's word, if it's just really hard to get into God's word, to know, know him more fully, to engage with him more deeply, what does that say about remembering what he's done? If you were to look at your prayer life, knowing that Christ is interceding for us before the throne of grace right now, if our prayer life is spotty at best, minute here, minute there, shotgun this prayer, shotgun that prayer, but there's no communion with God, what, it, what does that say about remembering what Christ has done? What does that say about remembering your redemption? The sins that Christ redeemed us from. How are we doing fighting those sins? Like, are we making war against this? Or are we willingly forgetting what Christ redeemed us from and walking back into the slavery, willingly putting these shackles back on? Like, do you live in light of your redemption? Are you living that redeemed life? What words characterize your faith? When you say, I'm passionate, I'm excited, I'm zealous, I'm all in. I'm bored, apathetic, complacent, stingy. Like all of these questions, that's going to point to how you're remembering rightly or wrongly. And maybe to those questions, you answer positively. And if that's you, praise God. Like we can celebrate that. This is not meant to be a guilt trip. I'm just, I think I've spent enough time with enough people now to know that most all of us in this room by our own admission, by acknowledging it ourselves, I'm not living in the light of my redemption. I'm not living that redeemed life. What Christ has done in the past is not really affecting my here and now or my future. And here's the tragedy of the whole thing. The, forgot, or the forgetful life is forgotten. Like, when you don't live in light of your redemption, and this is going to be hard to hear, when you do not live in light of your redemption, there is nothing worth remembering about you. And what I'm not saying is that your goal should be have a legacy. That's not the point of your life. The point of your life is to live in such a way that people would remember who Christ is, what Christ has done, that they would look at you and they would say, my goodness, they serve a big God. And I might not believe in him, but they definitely do. But when we live enslaved to the same world that everyone else is enslaved to, we're letting those expectations, those demands rule us and govern us and enslave us. That's a forgotten life. No one's impressed by that. Because you know what's forgotten the second after you die? How much money you made. What kind of car you drove what kind of job you had, 
what kind of clothes you wore, what your GPA was. Like when everything we do here and now is based off making the here and now better, that is not living in the light of redemption. That is a boring, wasted 80 years. It's going to be forgotten. But the life that remembers rightly, that remembers redemption and lives in light of that, the remembering life is remembered. Again, not in a self-exalting way, but in a way that it was clear to everyone that person belonged to God. Like they just, they just sacrificed everything for the gospel. They were sold out and they did whatever they could do so that Jesus would be known in the sphere of life that God's put them in. That they would look at a redeemed life and they would say, they had this kindness and this compassion and this mercy that the world was so desperate for. That they would look at this redeemed life that's remembering rightly and they would say, he just pursued holiness. She just pursued holiness in such a way that I got a bigger glimpse of who Jesus was. That your life would be marked by a mission and a purpose and a reason that was so much bigger than the small little world that's right in front of our face. Are you remembering rightly? Because you remember rightly, you live the redeemed life. It's going to be a lot like Exodus 13. Just like the kids ask their parents, man, why do you do that? Now people will look at you and they'll say, man, why do you make those choices? Why do you live that way? And the answer is the same from Exodus 13 as well. Listen, I was enslaved. I was chained up in darkness. I was living for myself. And when I least expected it and when I least deserved it, God showed up. And by the strong hand of the Lord, I was redeemed. I was reclaimed by the one who made me. And then everything changed. Remembering rightly changes everything because the remembering life is remembered. And you might not be remembered by anybody here. You'll be remembered by God in eternity. See, the message of Exodus 13 is alive for us today. Never forget whose you are and never forget what God's done. Because the truth is, when God redeemed you, he claimed you for himself. What he's done and whose you are, it's two, it's two sides of the same coin. Your redemption solidifies your belonging. And the Bible teaches that from cover to cover. There will always be this pull for autonomy. There'll always be this pull that thinks, I'm in charge, I'm doing what I basically want to do. That's not at all what you're going to learn when you open the Bible. No, you are enslaved to sin or you are enslaved to righteousness. And when God redeems you, he says, now you're free to walk with me. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, you are not your own. You are bought with a price, so glorify God in your bodies. If I can just reword that. Remember rightly. Remember what God has done. Remember whose you are. And let that influence everything you do now and let that determine everything you do in the future.
Are you living in the light of your redemption? Letting that determine all things that you do. I grew up in the land of 10,000 lakes. God's country, Minnesota. Dan, anything? My man. All right. <laughs> With all the lakes in Minnesota, everyone loves to boat on the weekend. Everyone goes to the lake. Everyone spends their time in the summer enjoying the water. And they tell the story of one kid who especially loved to boat. So much so that him and his dad one year built a, two, uh, built a small little wooden sailboat for the two of them. And so they spent this, uh, the spring months together in the garage and they're working on the wood, they're painting it and bending it and putting it together. And finally when this boat is complete, the sun is just beaming, he's so proud of it. And so his dad wants him to remember this time they enjoyed together, so he gives him a little chisel and a hammer. And he says, I want you to hammer your initials in the bottom of this boat. And so the son does this. And then later that summer, they're out enjoying the lake. And they're sailing around, and it's this great afternoon. And they pull up, pull off to the side for lunch. And as they go and enjoy lunch, the son forgot to pull the, ship, or the boat far enough onto the shore. And so they get done with lunch, and they come back, and the kid's devastated. The boat got pulled into the middle of the lake, and, and they can't find it now. And so they're frantic, and the father and the son are running up and down the shore trying to find this thing. They can't find it. Kid jumps on his, ba his bike. He pedals around the lake ten times. The little sailboat's gone. It's lost. He goes home completely heartbroken. Some time passes. Ten years later, the kid's now an adult, and he's at a local pawn shop with his fiance. And they're looking through all the stuff they want to decorate their apartment with when they get married. And in the corner of the pawn shop, lo and behold, a little wooden sailboat. Now, it's pretty much unrecognizable. The sail's been torn. Most of the paint's rubbed off. Much of the wood is chipped. But he goes and he looks at it, and there he sees his initials still carved into the bottom. He's ecstatic. That's my boat. And so quickly he runs to the cashier, he buys this boat, he gets his pickup truck, he backs it up, he lifts up this boat, he puts it in the bed of his pickup, and then he closes the tailgate. And as he sees his initial still carved into it, he says, now you are doubly mine. I made you, and now I have bought you back again. That is redemption. God made you, and through the blood of Christ, he bought you back again. Never forget that. Ground yourself in that. Because the moment that doesn't become beautiful, the moment we forget that, welcome to the forgettable life. But we just, we wake up and we know I am doubly his. I've been made and I've been bought back again. It's going to change everything. Your life will never be the same. And the way you interact with people in your life, the way you decide what you're going to do now and how you're going to plan for the future, completely changed. Because I'm remembering whose I am, because I know what God's done. And if we can ground ourselves in that truth together, I think a high and a right aspiration to have is that one day, on our last days, we could say the same thing the Apostle Paul said. He said, 
We didn't live for ourselves. We didn't die for ourselves. Because when we lived, we lived for the Lord. When we died, we're going to die for the Lord. So whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. You are doubly His. Let's pray.